Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 23. Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. This verse is sandwiched, sandwiched between a few verses about gossiping and being a troublemaker and a few verses about liars and how they hate. The point is this. Wicked people know how to tell a good tale, to spin a good yarn, and they know how to put you off your guard. Their words mask their hearts. The proverb likens them to cheap pottery with a shiny glaze. Instead of beautiful words, revealing a heart of gold, their lips spew lying words, concealing evil. From this truth we can draw much wisdom. First, all is not gold that glitters. We must learn to discern and to decipher what is truly valuable from what is a lie. A good rule of thumb, or jumping off point for this, is to remember the other proverb, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You probably noticed by now that the internet is full of free offers of thousands of dollars of money if you'll just send them your bank account number and personal information. You are the answer to their prayers and you will be helping them out by transferring funds from Burkina Faso or Liberia or some other exotic location. There are also many offers of a good time with no strings attached from complete strangers. Girls whose only goal in life is to bring you pleasure. Don't worry, it's all on the up and up. Don't be a fool and don't fall for the lies. Don't be dazzled by the Las Vegas glitter and lights. Somebody is after your wallet or your reputation or both and they don't care how much it hurts you. Second, and a little closer to home, we must learn to discern and to decipher the hearts of those who speak around us. The immediately preceding verses are about gossiping. Gossip is frequently carried on under the guise of concern for someone or some other noble cause. But when speech is driven by wicked motives to hurt others, to make them look bad or to gloat over them, no matter what the appearance is, the result is damage to the community. Instead of investing in the body, they are damaging, they're hurting the body. Finally, and closest to home, this proverb is a warning to us to guard our own hearts and to repent of any wickedness in our own hearts. It is easy for us to judge others, but wickedness and pride are deceitful, and we must acknowledge that we are both capable of and probably guilty of putting a veneer on our own motives. We know that appearances matter, so we know how to put on a happy face and to say the right things. But appearance is not enough. God judges hypocrisy, and we must match our outward profession with the humility and wisdom of genuine love, lest we be found to be worthless pottery. 
This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel. It's just, you see famous artwork, famous sculptures everywhere, everywhere you go. You, but it, it becomes overwhelming to the point where it's blasé. It's almost boring. So that by the time you're halfway through the tour, your, your legs are tired and you're, you're seeing everything. You walk through a door and Molly snaps a picture of me. And we look at the picture and behind me is Raphael's School at Athens. And it's just this amazing artwork that's pictured all over the world. But it's just so humdrum how you just approach it. But it's it's glorious artwork. It's great and, and incredible wealth. But it was paid for through indulgences. For a fee, a person could supposedly deliver a deceased loved one from purgatory. Or even pay against his or her own future sins. In order to buy from the Pope the, the office of Archbishop of Mainz, Albert of Brandenburg borrowed a huge sum of money from the bank and with Pope Leo's authorization began to sell indulgences in Germany in order to repay 
the debt. Albert's chief salesman was Johann Tetzel, who traveled from town to town selling forgiveness as if it were a sack of potatoes. Tetzel's catchy chant went like this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. When Tetzel brought his act to Wittenberg, a German priest named Martin Luther was outraged. He responded with his 95 theses, which he nailed to the Wittenberg church door on October 31, 1517, Reformation Day today. This marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation with its return to the authority of the scriptures and the doctrine of salvation by faith. And it all came about because one man stood up to oppose the swelling tide of religious materialism. That's the problem. Materialism, this religious materialism. What has James already said about the rich and the poor? In James chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, we read this. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. That's what James said about the rich and the poor. Then, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, he says, Do not show partiality, especially verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower... Oh, I'm sorry. To those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? James uh, reiterates the sentiment regarding the passing nature of life at the end of chapter 4 in the passage we studied last week. There we saw James take issue with those who plan arrogantly and boast of their exploits because... And I quote, their life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So what's the, the flow of James' argument here? James is outlining and highlighting the differences between heavenly and earthly wisdom. Our text today is the crescendo of the negative argument. He's been building up to this, and it amounts to a warning passage for those who serve mammon. Our text starts in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Who are the rich that James speaks to? As in last week's passage, there are many who want to have James address outsiders with this critique. Non-Christians. Those who are outside the church. But how would they even hear it? This is for the community of the church. This is for community members. More specifically, this has a lot of traction within the Jewish nation. At the time and history in which this book was written, which, if you remember back from our introduction, was probably the same year that Jesus was crucified and Stephen was stoned. 
At this time in the history of the church, there was no cultural distinction between the Jews and the church. The disciples of Jesus, they were, they were intermixed among the Jews. They were, they were the true, true Israel. And in fact, those distinctions were only beginning to come about because of the persecution of the church by the Jewish nation. And even decades on, the church was mostly considered as a sect of Judaism. So it is applicable within the covenant community, within the covenant bounds. It's applicable within the, the, the boundaries of the church. Just as James had to command the church to refrain from showing partiality to the poor, he now has to warn the rich in the church not to take liberty. Much like Paul tells the rich not to get drunk in their love feasts while others starve in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. James' message is clear. There is a great reversal here. Verse 1 is a warning that brings to mind the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. And we find that in Luke chapter 16. But specifically Abraham's words to the rich man across the gulf that separated them in verse 25. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. So James' warning brings on this, this life is temporary aspect. He says, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. The, your, your present luxury is temporary. James is warning the rich that they should do what he commanded in the beginning of the book, and that's the glory in their humiliation. They should repent of their greed, and this is why. It's because the wealth is worthless. Verses 2 and 3. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Worldly wealth is temporary, as is life. So you can't take it with you. You, you. If you're wealthy now, good for you, great for you. But you can't take it with you. What we do with it here is where its true value lies. James is not saying that the, their riches, their, their hoarded food, their clothes, and their gold and silver were literally corrupted, moth-eaten and corroded. Presumably, because they valued their wealth so much, they would have taken good care of it. But James is using this corruption language to point to the moral decay of the exorbitantly wealthy. Their wealth is corrupt because of how they use it, because they hoard it instead of using it. The Bible teaches that if you're given much, much is required from you. If you have a lot of wealth, put it to work in the service of God and the service of His kingdom. Remember the parable of the talents. Jesus said it should have at least been put in the bank to earn interest so that it could be returned with increase. So all wealthy people hold what they hold in trust. They're stewards. It's not theirs. Beyond this, 
The fact that their wealth was worthless, according to eternal value. They bore guilt for greed, which which was manifest in that they withheld wages. Verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The Old Testament law was very clear on this. Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. And again in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when the law was reiterated. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of, one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. And the prophets reiterate this when they condemn Israel for their failure to obey. Jeremiah 22. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. This wickedness will not go unpunished. And the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, that's what Sabaoth means, he's the Lord of armies, our God, our mighty God, who judges from heaven and brings judgment down on men, hears. And this is no light matter. This is what, this is what David said in 1 Samuel 17 when he was talking to Goliath. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And we all know how that went down for Goliath. Not so good. Likewise in Deuteronomy 10, God administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. And in Malachi 3, And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away and add alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Our God is a God who has compassion on those in need, who loves the underclass. He cares for the underprivileged, the poor, the downtrodden, and the outcasts. He sends his disciples to share the gospel, the good news of life and salvation to them. And because of their position and their humility, the gospel tends to spread like wildfire there. But the rich are full of shamelessness and folly. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. They are fat, they are sleek, and they are fools. Pleasure and luxury. This has teeth in America. We live in an affluent society. We have all kinds of wealth 
available at our fingertips. We must be circumspect lest this accusation stick. Do we live in pleasure and luxury? Have we fattened our hearts as in the day of slaughter? The picture is of, of an ox ready to be destroyed. They're fat, they're sleek, they're fools. And James tops off his scathing critique with a declaration of guilt for their, their crimes. Verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. They're guilty of murdering the righteous. The, the word the just there could be taken in a number of ways, and perhaps it's intended to be taken in a number of ways. It could be a reference to Jesus, who was murdered by the wealthy Jews. Or Stephen. It could be a reference to Stephen's murder, which which initiated the dispersion of, of, the, of the church to which James was writing. Um, or it could be a reference to the church itself, the poor and the weak in the church, or the persecuted ones in the church. Regardless, the wealthy are willing to kill in order to maintain their lifestyle. Again, America murders babies 3,000 a day to maintain her lifestyle. The rich are willing to stop the mouths of those who resist them. This, he does not resist you at the end, also has, it can be taken two different ways. It could be a reference to the willingness of the Christian to turn the other cheek. You've murdered the just, and he didn't even fight you. You are, you are creating, you are committing violence because his mere existence is an affront to your sin. And you feel guilt, so you kill him. It increases your guilt that he does not resist you. So it's a reference to the Christian willingness to turn the other cheek like Jesus and like Stephen did. Or it can be taken as a question implying the subject of God. Does God not resist you? And this would be recalling chapter 4, verse 6, where James quotes the Old Testament and says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In, in that sense, he's saying, do you think you can get away with this? No, you can't. The Lord of Sabaoth, he hears. He hears the prayers of the just. In all this, we see that wealth is dangerous and money is deceptive. James has strong words for the rich. Remember his resolution at the end of chapter 4, the verse preceding our text. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And immediately afterward, James indicts the rich for their greed and their covetousness. What's the central message of the book of James so far? He says, pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit the widow and orphan in their hour of need and to stay unspotted from the world. Are you visiting the widow and orphan in their hour of need? Or are you exploiting the, exploiting the wage earners? Are you staying unspotted of the world? Or are you living in luxury 
success. Wealth is a burden. Wealth is a burden. Money is deceptive. It's a blessing and a tool that God gives to the righteous and the, and the wise. But men must beware of its subtleties. Jesus warned us of this explicitly in Luke 12. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them. And it's the parable of the, the rich man who had good land, and he tore down his barns and built up larger ones, so that he could say to himself at the end, Soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Beware the deceptiveness of money. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Likewise, Paul warns Timothy about the snares of wealth in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he's speaking to Timothy about those in the church. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their, in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Don't put your faith in the wealth. Put your faith in God. God can take it in a heartbeat. He did for Job. Jesus voluntarily gave it up. God's in control of that. He's giving it to you for you to use the way he commands you to use it. You hold it in trust. You are a steward. John also piles on in Revelation chapter 3, speaking to the church of the Laodiceans. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He sounds a lot like James there, doesn't he? You say, I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, but you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's like James says, your wealth is corrupted. It's worthless. It's, it means nothing in the eyes of God. John goes on. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Notice how the spiritual perspective correctly identifies true wealth with the refining of suffering, the clothing of righteousness, and the ability to see. And what is it you're supposed to see? 
but your neighbor. To love your neighbor. To be generous to him. And these things have a reward. John goes on. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wealth is deceptive. The world has bought it hook, line, and seeker. Don't fall for the lies of the secular world. Don't live on easy street. Don't make that your aim in life. Remember God. Glory in your humiliation and service of Him and His gospel. Humble yourself before Him and He will lift you up. And now I come to an important diversion. It has to do with what James said back in verse 3. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. What's that mean? What's he talking about there? It means that we must discern the times. And Solomon is clear that there is a season and there is a time for everything under the sun. A time to accumulate and a time to spend. What I'm talking about here in particular is covenantal culpability. God judges the world corporately as a body. So when Israel mistreated the poor, God threatened Israel with destruction. Isaiah 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Jeremiah 22. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice. Who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it. Paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. So he's talking about granite countertops and fancy floors. And he's, Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Shalom was the son of Josiah. Josiah was a righteous king. Shalom, not so much. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes... And your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. And then, after God preached that this judgment was coming, well, he warned them first in the law, then he gave it to the prophets, and, and then when God delivered on his promises and sent the Jews into exile, all of the Jews suffered. All of the Jews suffered. They were all they were all either carted off into exile or left in destitution in the, in the Holy Land. Nobody got a, a, a pass. But even in that, God saves the righteous. Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel were saved. And the remnants returned with Ezra and with Nehemiah. But the righteous suffered. They had to go. The wicked were tenacious and greedy, and they perished in their guilt. But they all suffered. 
We see the same pattern with the way the Jews of Jesus' day and James' day held on to their wealth, which ultimately led to the wars of the Jews and the total destruction of the nation of Israel and the temple in AD 70, just as Jesus had prophesied. They were living in the last days, buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage, just like in the days of Noah, just like Jesus said. And in that context, they're hoarding wealth. Instead of spreading the gospel, giving the only thing that can save, the Jews mistreated the church. And all of the nation was destroyed in the war against the Jews. And yet God saved his remnant. The church made it out. And this is where we must take a moment for retrospection concerning our own place in history. We're like the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they were righteous. They appropriated Moses from the law. We have Moses. Well, America appropriates the pilgrims, the, 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 the American fathers, good and righteous men. They're standing on the shoulders of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. In our pride, arrogance, Greed and consumerism, we maintain that we are righteous and champions of all that is good and noble in the world. But in reality, we don't even know the meaning of those words corporately any longer. We don't know what it means to be good, noble, and righteous. This confusion is why, as a nation, we are champions of democracy instead of servants of Jesus Christ. Our nation's wealth and our arrogant and ravenous pursuit of luxury and leisure and convenience is why we have legalized abortion. It's why we have more and more oppressive tax laws, more and more broken homes, a widening wealth gap, growing racial tension, and more and more people being thrown under the bus of progress. How long is it going to be before the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of Armies, hears the cries of his poor and his aliens, his widows and his orphans, and comes to judge our wickedness? How long? Don't buy into the lies and enticements of wealth. Stand firm and hold on to the gospel. And you're going to find that you're going to come into greater and greater conflict in our culture. But that's okay. Remember David and Goliath. Take courage. Who are they to divide the armies of the living God? And who are you but the army of the living God? So we've gone over personal wisdom with money, and we've considered the corporate madness of our culture in its pursuit of wealth. Let's take a moment and consider money in the church. But first I want to give a nod to James' teaching in 1 verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit, which means to help, widows and orphans in their hour of need, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Mercy ministry is absolutely vital to the life of the church. It is our job 
to take care of those who hurt. It's our job. That's Jesus' work in the world. And we are his body. Our participation in Love, Inc. is a beautiful thing. Our ministry to one another, helping each other, lifting each other up, working through things, living in faithful community, that is our job. Mercy ministry is necessary in the church. There is no church without relief of need and relief of oppression. There's no church without it. When God makes things right with us, it necessarily results in our making things right for our neighbors. And that means upholding justice and administering mercy. So that means standing up for the little guy, defending him against the wickedness of corporate greed or national greed. Second, money in the church, regarding money in the church, is that repentance is key. Humility is absolutely key to the faithful use of money in the church. Money brings great danger. Verse 5, you've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. We live in the context of that temptation every day. We have plenty to eat, we have warm homes, we have warm beds. It is really easy to embrace that and pursue that. It's really easy to look over our shoulder and say, but they've got it better, so I feel bad for myself. It's very easy for us to do this. And that's a pursuit of luxury, and it's fattening our hearts for the slaughter. We must do some hard thinking and consider whether we are being faithful to the gospel command to run the race. Are we laying aside everything that hinders us? Are, or are we pursuing an idol? Because if we have bought into the world's categories, we will participate in its judgment, even if we're saved by the skin of our teeth. Let us do as James suggests, is let the rich glory in their humiliation. As the flower fades and as the grass withers, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Finally, money is not an end, it is a means. All things we have we hold as servants of God. In Luke 19, Jesus commands us thus, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fall, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Money's a tool. Money's a talent. Like in the parables of the talents. We're supposed to use our money in accordance with God's commands and use it in His service and in serving one another. God knows and God sees our checkbooks. He reads our budgets and He judges. And I leave you with an exhortation from Paul in the book of Galatians at the end of the book. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 
Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. Father, we thank you, for you are a good God and you are good to us. You have showered your blessings upon us. We've inherited the wealth of our fathers. We rejoice and we glorify you for your goodness in this to us. And yet at the same time, we humble ourselves before you. We repent of any greed or covetousness or wickedness in our own hearts. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see you in clarity and truth and to see our neighbor and to have compassion and love for him. Father, we ask that you would cause us to stand boldly and to defy the armies of the world because we are your people and you are our God. Father, we now close you. Christ came down from his rightful place of glory at the right hand of God. Speaking to one of his disciples, he said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet he calls us all to follow him. He left glory and came down to walk this earth and to suffer and to bear our burdens and to give good gifts to us. And now he has gone to the heavenly mansion to prepare a glorious place for us. This life and this world are temporary. The wealth we manage, the gifts we receive, our jobs, our families, our health, these are all His gifts to us. And we hold them in trust until He will require them of us again. But we see with the eyes of faith that there is nothing we need but Him. And himself, he has already given to us, and he will never take himself away from us. Here we celebrate and remember, and in faith receive his gift, his life, and his sacrifice for us. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.